As a child, St. Thomas Aquinas was different. Thomas was the seventh son of Count Landolf of Aquino. Aquino is a town about 75, 80 miles southeast of Rome. Anyways, Landolf didn't know what to do with his seventh boy, unlike Thomas's brothers, almost all of whom would pursue military careers, Thomas wasn't that aggressive. He was a large, heavy, quiet boy. The story goes that a teacher was concerned with how quiet he was and, and, and once asked the shy student what he was thinking. The young Thomas Aquinas responded by asking a question. What is God? The teacher's answer isn't recorded, but it is likely that the simple yet profound answer stumped him. In due time, Thomas of Aquino, who we know as Thomas Aquinas, would go on to answer his own question about as well as anyone could. Today we celebrate Trinity Sunday. The Catechism tells us that the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith and life. Trinity Sunday has also been called the preacher's nightmare because, to put it simply, the mystery of the Trinity is difficult to understand and even more difficult to explain. However, I would venture to say that young Thomas Aquinas' question, what is God, is a good place to start in trying to understand this central mystery of the Christian faith. What is God is a question about nature, the nature of, uh, of God, right? If somebody asks, what are you, they're asking, what is your nature, right? And we should respond, I am a human being. What is God? Well, simply put, God is the one absolutely and infinitely perfect spirit who is the creator of all. But that really just scratches at the surface, right? God is infinite. He is eternal. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He always was, is, and will be. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. He is love. He is omnipresent. He is all just, all holy, all merciful. He is infinitely perfect, utterly simple and immutable. As you can see, it's hard to succinctly say what God is. It's hard to succinctly answer the question, what is God, right? Because the reason for that is that God is not a being, a thing in the universe. Not even the supreme being or thing in the universe. No, instead, he is the self-explaining source of existence as such, the great font of being who sustains the whole universe, all creation in being. That is what God is. There's a second important question that goes along with the question, what is God? Who is God? The question, who is God, is a question about personhood. So what is God is a question about nature. Who is God is a question about person. Again, imagine if somebody came up and said, who are you? Well, if I was asked such a question, I should respond, I'm Father Matt Nagel. The question, who are you, is a question about person. So, who is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one and three and three and one. One God, three dis distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, whole and entire. The Son is God, whole and entire. The Holy Spirit is God, whole and entire. Yet, nonetheless, we aren't talking about three gods but only one God. God is three persons who share one divine nature. Now, there's a key difference we ought to be aware of. Let's take three, uh, three men, okay? 
Peter, James, and John. They are three persons, and they all share a common human nature. That's like the Trinity, right? No. See, Peter, James, and John are also three distinct beings, and none of them, in fact, no one human being possesses the entirety of human nature in himself. However, in the case of God, the three divine persons possess one common nature, but nevertheless remain one being, and each person themselves possesses the fullness of divine nature. If I've confused you, I'm sorry. Maybe our gospel will clear things up a bit. Today, our gospel begins with the famous John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. There are other verses in the Bible, many other verses and passages, uh, where the reality of the Holy Trinity is more manifest and obvious. So why is this one our gospel for Trinity Sunday? Well, I think there's something about this simple, short passage from the Gospel of St. John that cuts to the heart of the matter. You know, it's been said that Trinity is a fancy way of saying God is love. For if God is love, then there must be a lover, a beloved, and the love between the two. God is love. That means God is a communion, a relationship of persons. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's a little bit more understandable, but, you know, thanks for the theology lesson. What does this have to do with, with my life today? Well, in short, everything. You know, I mentioned earlier that the Catechism says the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Catholic faith. And the reason it is the central mystery is because it is a mystery of God in himself, God who is our first cause, our reason for existence and being, and our final end. The very purpose of our existence is to come to know and to love God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what's more, he has, he has created us in his image and likeness. As a result, the more we grow closer to God, the more God takes center stage in our life, the more we come to know and love him, the more we will truly be ourselves, what we are meant to be. By contrast, when we sin, we not only rebel against God, but we are rebelling against our very selves, the, the, the version of ourselves, if you will, that we are meant to be. And we see a perfect example of this in the fall of our first parents. Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God, as we all are. Yet Satan tempts them, and this is really interesting, Satan tempts them by saying, you will be like God if you eat the forbidden fruit. I say it's interesting because Adam and Eve already are like God. They're made in his image and likeness. But the serpent sows doubt and uncertainty. And here's the ultimate irony. In the moment when Adam and Eve choose to sin, they become unlike God by clinging to themselves. And then there's the fallout. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Suffering and death enter the world, and it's here to stay. Bishop Robert Barron said, With the fall, we see the triumph of ego over relationship, living for oneself instead of for one another. The evidence of original sin of our fallen human nature is everywhere. It's in history. It's in the news. It's on display in this world. And sadly, especially in these past few weeks, as I'm sure was the case with us all, I was horrified when I saw the video of George Floyd's death. Archbishop Nauman, in his column for the Leaven, wrote, Racism is not a thing of the past. It is a real and present danger that must be addressed. 
As members of the church, we cannot remain indifferent and silent in the, fa- in the face of such injustice. And the archbishop continued to say that he shared the outrage against the grave injustice, and he supported the necessity of passionate, peaceful protests, like the one we had in Emporia yesterday. At the same time, he deplored those who exploit this tragedy for violent riots, looting of neighborhood businesses, and destruction of property. Trinity Sunday reminds us of the infinite majesty and transcendence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also reminds us of the unique human dignity each and every one of us possess in virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. Really, the issue of racism is a pro-life issue. The pro-life cause stands against any attempt to redefine human dignity in such a way that certain groups are excluded from that dignity. Their dignity as a human being is lessened or done away with. And it doesn't matter whether those groups are the unborn or the aged and the infirm or those with special needs or those with a different skin color. It doesn't matter. We are all made in the image and likeness of God, and we all possess the dignity and rights which flow from being made in his image. And so just as it isn't sufficient to personally be against abortion, but do nothing to fight the grave evil of abortion. So the archbishop tells us it's not enough for Catholics to merely refrain from racial bigotry and discrimination. We are called to engage in efforts to eliminate racial injustice within our society and to promote policies that respect the dignity of each and every member of our community. What does that mean? Maybe that simply begins with a willingness to learn uh, how to listen to the struggles of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe maybe just a willingness to listen uh, to the hardships that our African-American brothers and sisters have had to endure um, throughout their lives. It might begin with that, might begin with listening, and, it, and but it can't end there, right? You know, our Catholic faith is, is often uh, categorized by a both-and dynamic rather than an either-or dynamic. For instance, we believe in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. We believe in faith and reason. This is The same is true with our response to the grave injustice of racism in our society. We must work to end all injustices, including racism, which, which pervade our nation. And we must be converted. The truth is, everybody wants to change the world, yet so few are willing to change themselves. No true reform will happen without conversion of of hearts, and first and foremost, without the conversion of our hearts. We must be converted and allow the love of God to fully transform our hearts. We must, through prayer, through sacrifice, by frequenting the sacraments, seek to allow the love of God to pervade our very being. We must become saints because the saints are the conduits through which God's love is made visible in our own day. We must be converted and we must work to end injustice in society. That is how we can truly glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.